Island Shakespeare Festival's Shakespeare Playground presents Tales from the Vomitorium 38 Short Stories by Scott Kaiser At Island Shakespeare Festival, our mission is to provide accessible classical theater realized for a contemporary audience. Tales from the Vomitorium is presented with special permission from Scott Kaiser and is made possible in part by support from our sponsors The Goose Community Grocer Goosefoot Community Fund, and Whidbey Telecom. Learn more at islandshakespearefest.org. Today, Shelley Hartle reads The Monitor by Scott Kaiser. Then, Shelley will share her response to the story. Afterwards, Scott and Olena will chat about the story and the play by which it's inspired. We hope you enjoy. The Monitor by Scott Kaiser Read by Shelley Hartle I'll leave the remote on your desk, boss. Lou Ellis from Tech Services had just finished installing a closed-circuit TV monitor on the wall in the artistic director's office so she could keep track of rehearsals on the main stage without leaving her desk. Thank you, Lou, dear said Hannah. Hannah Quint was now in her late seventies and was having trouble with her back. So, rather than walk up and down multiple flights of stairs to peek in on rehearsals, this seemed a sensible solution. The monitor was fed from a camera in the stage manager's booth, with audio coming from a microphone hanging above the front row of the audience. Hannah sat down at her desk in the expensive, new, state-of-the-art, ergonomic chair that had been given to her by a wealthy board member. She picked up the remote and flipped on the monitor. It was the dinner break during a 10 out of 12 tech rehearsal for King Henry V. Three male actors sat in the front row, eating their dinners out of styrofoam clamshells, and they were talking about her. They spoke freely not realizing a sensitive microphone hung directly overhead. "'I know,' said Michael Williams, a handsome young actor who was new to the company. "'She's such an unbelievable narcissist.' "'Yes,' said John Bates, a large, middle-aged character man. "'She always assumes that whatever is good for her personally is good for the theater. Absolutely, said Alex Court, an older actor with twenty years in the company. Every decision she makes is about her own glory. She's slowly gotten rid of all the truth-tellers in the organization, said Michael. True that, replied John. There's no one left who's willing to disagree with her. All she has left are the ass-kisses, agreed Alex. You mean like us, said Michael. Hell yeah, John agreed. We're not stupid enough to cross her. That's a great idea, Hannah, exclaimed Alex, mocking himself. I just love it, Hannah, said Michael, pretending to applaud. You're brilliant, Hannah, said John, 
bowing his head. Thank you, your majesty, said Alex, genuflecting. All hail the queen, Michael cried out, topping them all. That's the only way to get onto her A-list, said John, matter-of-factly. Otherwise, it's off with his head, exclaimed Alex. Like at our actor meetings, said Michael. God forbid you should disagree with her. I don't think that's fair, said John. She listens carefully to our concerns, and then she goes off and does whatever the hell she decided to do before the meeting. Like with the dramaturg, said Alex. Can you believe the way she talks to him? Smartest man I know, and she constantly humiliates him, as if he were the class clown in high school. Honestly, said Michael. She talks to him like he mows her lawn. Well, said John, who does he think he is bringing his testicles to work? Off with his dick, shouted Alex. Speaking of dicks, said John, in a bizarre segue, do you remember the blubber speech? The what? asked Michael. This is before your time, Michael explained John. Her first year at the full company call, she said we all had to work together to make great art. Like the whalers in Moby Dick. Work the blubber, boys, work the blubber, mocked Alex, kneading the air with his hands. You're kidding, blurted Michael. No, this is true, said Alex. I mean, it was classic Hannah. She didn't seem to get that her own metaphor made her Captain Ahab, said John. That turned out to be a pretty good metaphor, added Alex. It's true, said John. She's obsessed. She's starting to show her age, though, said Alex. You can tell her back is hurting her, Michael agreed. That's from keeping a stiff spine for six or seven decades, observed Alex. When do you think she'll retire? asked Michael. Retire? Are you serious? said Alex. Never. She loves the power too much, needs it. It's like oxygen to her. They'll have to roll her out of here on a gurney, exclaimed John. Hannah turned off the monitor. She'd had enough. The next day, Lou, from Tech Services, came back to Hannah's office and removed the monitor. A month later, Hannah announced casting for the next season's productions. The names Michael Williams, John Bates, and Alex Court did not appear in any of the cast lists. That was The Monitor, read by Shelley Hartle, recording from the home of ISF Board President Rob Scott here on Whidbey Island. You may remember Shelley from the early days at Storyhouse Theatre and our first summer in Henry the Tent. 
Here are some thoughts Shelley had when reading this story. Afterthoughts. Well, I thought about this a little, and I've read on it a little, and obviously, this story, The Monitor by Scott Kaiser, um, I think is a parody of uh, a particular scene in King Henry V, where um, Henry, now an adult, is walking at night through his groups of soldiers, listening to their remarks. He's able to get away uh, from being recognized by the fact that he's wearing a cloak and also the fact that a lot of his lesser soldiers would not identify him by sight. Um, but this particular night, he wants to know if they have faith in him. And so he's out checking around. And there are three people he checks in with, three men. And um, it's interesting what he hears. And some people are a little uh, skeptical about him. Others are true to form and very loyal. And it's, it's a very interesting scene. Uh, this particular uh, short story, again, The Monitor, um, uses three male actors. And obviously, all three of them are not not fans of Hannah, the uh, director in her late 70s. I, I think it's an interesting take on it. Uh, the only thing I have, or I would, um, hmm, take umbrage at, although that's a little strong, is that women in places of power are so often denigrated that it would have been interesting if this had been a guy rather than a woman. Harold Quint, I would have felt a little bit easier reading it, being a woman of a certain age. And I think it hits um, a bit of a uh, female stereotype. Other than that, I enjoyed it immensely. <laughs> and that's all I wanted to offer. Thank you. This is Shelley Hartle. The Goosefoot Community Fund. Goosefoot works together with the South Whidbey community to create essential solutions. We address community needs, connect neighbors, grow local businesses, and preserve great places. Learn more at goosefoot.org. Thank you so much for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium. You've just heard The Monitor, read by Shelley Hartle. Scott's with us today to chat about the story, The Monitor, and the play on which it's based. Hey, Scott, welcome back. Hi, Alina. So The Monitor has a little bit of a different twist on events in Henry V. Um, I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about what inspired this story. So I guess uh, talking about uh, Henry V is uh, a good place to start. Um, in Henry V, there's the night before the Battle of Agincourt. Um, I think it's it's Act Four, Scene One, probably. Um, and uh, the um, the king wanders among his soldiers, um, trying to get a sense of the morale of his men. Um, and uh, that was the inspiration for the story because um, I. I remember having many a conversation with um, artistic directors where I would say things like, um, you, you never get to hear what goes on in the room when you're not in the room. 
Um, and that, I think that's uh, one of the odd things about being in power, about being an artistic director, I imagine, although I've never been one, is that, you know, a lot of stuff gets said that you just don't get to hear. Um, and I was just very much intrigued by that. And uh, I, as I said, I remember, you know, speaking with artistic directors trying to say, well, that's what she said to you. Um, <laughs> but that's not what she's saying um, to the rest of us. Um, you know, and it, it, it can become very awkward, very political, very challenging to maneuver that. Um, so, you know, what I love about that scene in Henry V is here's Henry's soldiers sort of griping about, you know, the king and about he doesn't get it and he doesn't care about our lives and doesn't he understand that we're doomed and, you know, uh, why should I kill myself when everybody's sleeping at home back in England safely? And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's a gripe session before a war, before a battle, a big one, and um, he gets to hear everything that goes on. So. I just leap to what's the equivalent. And for me, the equivalent was, well, what if an AD were to install a monitor in the green room or uh, uh, in the theater? Um, and then I realized that theaters do have monitors and it became kind of an easy jump to, let's just say that she installed a, um, in her own office, uh, a way of hearing what was going on in the stage, not to listen in, but just to get a sense of what was going on. Um, and that, completely backfires on this uh, particular artistic director um, because she starts hearing uh, everything that uh, she doesn't normally hear. Yeah, I think what's interesting to me about the story is that in the play, that experience that Henry has inspires some really beautiful speeches <laughs> that, uh, you know, and a lot of inspirational quotes that we still quote today, you know. Um, and it it seems to have a sort of different effect on the artistic director in the in the story. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. I mean, the, you're you're right that I mean Henry does learn from listening to his soldiers, and um, and it gives him a pause to think about you know what it means to be king, the responsibilities laid upon the shoulders of a king. It's also true in the exact same saying that um, that he exchanges gloves, you know, uh, with uh, with I think it's Williams. Um, and saying the next time I see you, if we both survive this battle, I'm going to whoop your butt. Uh, so there also is uh, some animosity there. Uh, at the end of the play, um, uh, there's still some animosity between Henry and Williams, even though uh, Williams is let off the hook. So I think I was more inspired by that, by the you know the uh, chagrin that Henry takes in hearing uh, a common soldier criticize the king, even when the king is undercover, and hold a grudge. Um, that grudge, even at the end of Henry, is still there, even though Henry lets uh, Williams off the hook. And that's, that is very much where I based my story, is that there is a, uh, uh, there's, there's a grudge there, and um, the monitor is removed, but uh, the, those three actors are essentially um, uh, not forgiven by uh, the queen in my story, uh, <laughs> which is Hannah Quint. Right, 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 right. And I think that's such an interesting sort of like human experience that that we sometimes have when we do, you know, learn a valuable lesson. It doesn't it's not an it's not always an easy pill to swallow. And um, 
even when there's there's growth from that, as we see in Henry in, you know, what how his motivating his troops changes, um, he's still hurt by by the lesson, you know, and as is she in the story. I mean, it is all part of a long arc of how to to becoming, um, uh, you know, a a force to reckon with as a king. By the end of Henry V, um, uh, he he is a force to reckon with. He has regained France through a marriage and through conquering lands that were formerly England. Uh, the, the trajectory from a, a pub rat to um, a married man who has a has a child, an heir, it's a long arc. And one of the things I love about this particular scene in Henry V is it's not so quite cut and dried as, oh my God, they're right. You know, I need to remember these things about my people and my soldiers, you know, that they're human too. And, uh, you know, he can have that conversation with himself while at the same time feeling a terrible grudge against them for thinking it. Um, human uh, behavior is, is complex enough to contain both of those contradictory impulses. And we know that from our own lives. You know, we can make a mistake with somebody, learn a vital lesson about better ways to do things and still screw up the very next time um, while telling ourselves, gosh, I know better. I, sh- I learned this already, didn't I? Don't I? <laughs> um, it's very, very human to learn a lesson and then forget it the very next time. Um, so uh, that's one of the things I love. That's one of the things that's so, so I think, genius about about uh, the uh, the arc of Henry V is it, it's so much more complex than just learning uh, as he goes. Uh, there's always another layer of complexity and contradiction inside the character, which is why it's so fun to to begin with the Henry IV parts one and two because we get to see that whole. I mean, the arc is incredible of of that character and we as as we've talked about in um the conversations about those the stories based on those two plays um on this podcast but it really is just a magnificent um human life that we get to see it's wonderful for the audience and it's also just enormously gratifying for the actor um when i did henry the fifth it was with Libby Apple as director, and um, it, it was um, the year 2000 and the Boomer. And the um, the actor was Dan Donahue. And the reason I bring this up is that Dan had done Henry IV one, Henry IV two, and had gone on to Henry V. Um, he played all three of those. And, uh, you know, when an actor is allowed to bring a character forward in an arc like that, um, the actor, uh, you know, the skill sets and um, that an actor picks up along the way are are truly remarkable um you know the the what an actor uh, is able to accomplish having done those three plays in sequence is truly truly remarkable very few actors at the festival have done the full sequence um before dan it was uh, marco baricelli um and then now i'm going to flail so maybe you can help me um uh, yeah it was john tufts and then uh john dan tufts Lina. yes Right. And then then, uh, the more recent um, uh, Henry was Dan Molina. Dan Molina. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So all four of those um, of those actors got to play that. And, um, you know, this is one of the things where um, I have um, I have 
advocated for women in particular because these long halls that that a few select men get to play really don't exist for women in doing Shakespeare. I mean, the only equivalent is Queen Margaret in Henry VI, one, two, three, and Richard III. And of course, um, uh, Robin Nordley got to do that years ago at the festival. But, uh, you know, in terms of becoming a master Shakespearean actor, um, this is one of the things that uh, that makes it possible to really uh, bring your skill sets to the highest possible level. And these doors are shut to most women because of the way these plays are gendered. Um, and so my hope going forward is that we will we will see some of these roles that go across uh, multiple plays uh, played by by uh, women um, as well as men. For sure. And, you know, I hope that that's some of the work that's also happening and understanding that there even are more genders than women and men. And and all of the roles can be played by any gender and should be played by all genders so that we can really mine the the humanity for all there is, you know. And the more we break those open and create space for... Um, the breadth of human experience in our culture, the, the more we learn, the better it is. Yes, of course. And, and, uh, I, I said uh, women, because if we look at the canon and the way it's divided and how, uh, few, uh, female roles that Shakespeare writ, uh, down originally, uh, that was my thought. But of course, you know, uh, when we talk about uh, casting now, we, we are of course talking about a full spectrum and, um, it, of course, uh, would be wonderful if the uh, strict definition of who gets to play what would shift to the, the full spectrum uh, of gender identity. Um, I think we're moving in that direction, but we have a long way to go. We definitely do, but it's so exciting. <laughs> it's so exciting to see it, to see it start to happen, to see layers start to, you know, kind of melt away and what's left is is the heart of it i agree i i i think um you know that generationally um that this will um this transition will will continue moving in this direction and uh, and and for the good yay <laughs> um going back to the story a little bit i i did want to just chat um a little more about you know having having been at a major regional theater for as long as you were and seeing um, different artistic directors through um, through the years there. Um, I'm curious about your take on on that role and on that sort of seat of power. I ask that as an artistic director at a very tiny theater that it's not the same job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give a very careful answer now. <laughs> um, yeah, it's true. I, I mean, I, I, um, I worked, I didn't get to work with um, Angus Bomer, but I did work with uh, Jerry Turner, Henry Warnitz, uh, Libby Apple, and uh, of course, Bill Rausch. So uh, four ADs, um, uh, you know, of in within the history of, of Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and and they were very different. They had very very different leadership styles. 
Um, and uh, um, they, I have to admit that there was a bit of a whiplash going from AD to AD. The transitions, I think, were challenging for those of us who stayed on and had to learn brand new ways of, of doing things, brand new ways of thinking about things, brand new ways of talking about things, um, and, and whole new value sets. Um, that uh, that came uh, with the transition of leadership. Uh, so it, it was uh, it was I think for me uh, personally uh, challenging um, in a good way. It meant that I had to learn and I had to shift and I had to adjust. And it stretched me and it pulled me as I adjusted. It was good. Uh, there's no doubt that some people could not flex and change and adapt and were let go or had to move on. Um, uh, I think for me, one of my secrets to my longevity at the festival was I, I looked long and hard at what an AD valued and I tried to uh, come alongside and uh, be a team player and, and uh, um, really uh, f fight and advocate for those values um, as best I could. Um, and uh, that's one of the reasons I think I was there for for so long is uh, I try to put the values um, ahead of, let's say, personality differences that um, I always kept the values in mind, uh, first and foremost. I think that's such great advice for any <laughs> any workplace, any relationship like there can be differences in approach, differences in you know, communication styles, whatever. But as long as, as long as there's shared commitment to mission and to, and to values and, and those values can be in alignment, um, putting focus there can, can, can and does serve everyone. Yes. And that's of course why theaters, you know, generate and print mission statements and generate, you know, value statements because, um, you know, a good AD will always go back and remind, uh, the, um, the people they are leading, um, that we are all working. This is what we're working towards. This is, you know, uh, this is our, these are our goals. This is our mission. So let's not talk about you or me. Let's talk about these values. Um, I, th there are certainly challenges when, um, when ADs and I, I've worked with these folks, uh, kind of mix up their mission with their own personal mission, <laughs> you know, their personal career and, um, um, and blend them together in a way that makes it confusing for employees. You know, am I, am I supporting the leader or am I supporting our mission? Uh, there are certainly times when I've worked where they have bled together in a way that makes it very complicated and very frustrating. For me, I think that the stronger leaders are the one that instead of using the I pronoun, uh, continue uh, over and over again to, to restate, rearticulate, and emphasize the mission. We are here in this room together to do this, to accomplish this. Uh, and that's a leader who puts themselves aside um, and, and uses the we pronoun rather than the I pronoun. Those are the people I like to work with <laughs> <laughs> because then you can put stuff aside, you know, on a, on a day where you're feeling kind of, you know, frustrated or, you know, irritated, you can, no, we're on the same team, you know, that happens, you know. Um, but, uh, and then, so that, those are the more gratifying, I think, uh, work environments. Definitely. Thank you so much for sharing that and for sharing this time. You bet. You bet. Wonderful. Well, we'll talk to you again very soon. <laughs> oh, actually, we won't. No, I, I got to wrap this up with the uh, end of season one. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, cool. Thank you so much, Scott. This has been such an exciting uh, first season of Tales from the Vomitorium, and I'm so excited to um, spend some time this summer working on season two, the second half of the 38 stories. Folks listening, if you have any feedback for us, we'd love for you to send it along. Um, you can do that through a contact us form on our website at islandshakespearefest.org um, or via uh, all of any of our social media. And yeah, we we can't wait to welcome you all back for more stories in the fall. Scott, thank you so much for writing these and for sharing them with Island Shakespeare Festival and for your generous giving of your time and your knowledge and your and your history. We're so grateful. Thank you, Alina. It's such a pleasure chatting with you. And I do hope that people will enjoy the stories and, uh, and uh, get something out of them. Definitely. Well, I certainly have. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. We'll talk to you again in a couple months. I look forward to it. All right. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. Sound design and composition by Orion Michael Schwong. This episode is sponsored in part by the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, Whidbey Telecom, and by our listeners. Support us and learn more at islandshakespearefest.org. Thank you.